Race has always cast a shadow over US politics, even before Donald Trump emerged on the scene. But in an era in which white nationalists are both marching in the streets and working in the White House, is this a unique moment in US history? In this upfront special, I'll ask one of America's leading public intellectuals, the renowned academic and activist, Dr. Cornel West. Cornel West, thank you for joining me on Upfront. Since Donald Trump became president in 2016, racism, racist attacks, racist rhetoric has gotten worse in the United States. But I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how unique a moment is this, this Trumpian moment in terms of modern American history when it comes to racism? Well, I think it's certainly distinctive because it is the escalation of white supremacy against blacks, indigenous peoples, Mexicans, tied to the rule of big money, the rule of big military. And so that, that when you get that kind of combination in which you scapegoat the most vulnerable based on racist and xenophobic bases and then hide and conceal the expansion of the power of big money Wall Street and big military, military industrial complex so that wealth inequality escalates at the very moment in which the racist attacks are taking place, you, you have the makings of a neo-fascist moment. And America has always been white supremacist, just like it's been male supremacist and capitalist. But neo-fascist moments for the country as a whole, not just people of color, is very, very distinctive in American history. And this is why I think so many people are depressed. Uh, especially on the left and in liberal circles, because they they think that somehow uh, 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 this is so new that it might be impossible to overcome, and that's why we have to have real, real examples of integrity, honesty, decency, courage, and hope. Because the only way we can get through this neo-fascist moment is through tremendous struggle and solidarity based on a commitment to poor and working people. You're right to talk about uh, the distinctiveness of the moment in terms of, as you put it, neo-fascism. But in terms of racism itself, what do you say to those people, especially some white liberals who say, we've never seen anything like this before, who act as if racism just began uh, in January 2017 when Donald Trump entered the White House? No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, as a black man in America for 66 years, you have to deal with it every day, every month, every year. Your kids, your cousins, your loved ones do as well. So in that sense, you know, white supremacy is always already operating. The question is what form will it take? Will it take slaveocracy, as in the South up until 1865, at the whole nation and beginning tied to slavery and enslavement of, of African peoples disproportionately? and exclusively after 20 years. Then here comes Jim Crow, here comes American terrorism. Now we got Jim Crow Jr., which is a kind of de facto uh, racist practices. So you're right, I mean, racism is in no way new, and this is true for indigenous peoples as well. But the, the crucial thing is the combination, though, brother, because, see, in American discourse, even on, on, in liberal circles, there's a tendency to talk about racism as if it is above history, as if it's not located in economic structures and institutions, yes. as if it's not grounded in 
attempts to somehow divide persons who, if they came together, they would be a threat to those above. And I, I, I refer you to the recent writings of my dear brother, towering intellectual Adolf Reed, who talks about this with great insight. You, some could argue that on the one hand, it's a good thing that white liberals are waking up to the racism that you say has always been present in the US in mainstream spaces. On the other hand, you simultaneously have this normalization of racist discourse because it's coming from the very top, it's coming from the commander in chief, it's coming from his acolytes in Congress and the media. Does one cancel out the other, do you think? Well, it's a wonderful question. No, not at all. That the, uh, when you have white supremacist perceptions, sensibilities and practices coming from above in a neo-fascist moment with a neo-fascist in the White House, cowardly Republican Party that is kowtowing to that neo-fascist. And then you've got liberals, on the other hand, who have their anti-racist sensibility, but oftentimes they are truncated. And let us add, though, brothers, it's not just the white liberal brothers and sisters. We got black liberals out there. We've got wings of the black bourgeoisie who don't want to hit capitalism, wealth inequality, and militaristic policies around the world head on. So you got black and white liberals together. The neoliberal establishment is a colorful establishment. It's yeah. not just vanilla. <laughs> It's funny you should mention that. Just uh, in the past few days, the African-American executive editor of The New York Times, Dean Baquette, was asked whether he thought Donald Trump was a racist. And he said, quote, I don't know. I think Donald Trump says racially divisive things. I think that's a little bit different. What's your response to that? I'd say, my dear brother, you are brilliant. My dear brother, you got power, but you need to get off the symbolic crack pipe. Let's speak directly. Say what you mean and mean what you say. If Donald Trump is not a racist, then I don't know what a racist is. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's so depressingly true. I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center revealed that the White House senior policy advisor, Stephen Miller, champion of the wall, champion of the Muslim ban, is a bona fide white nationalist. They've documented his obsession with white nationalist literature, his promotion of racist immigration stories, his emails to Breitbart That's News right. that put his extremist ideology on clear display. Is it therefore fair to conclude that the White House is now literally a white nationalist White House? Well, I think you certainly got uh, highly influential voices at the highest levels that uh, would lead one in that direction. Certainly so, certainly so. I mean, again, though, the crucial role of, uh, you know, certain black folk who are still around in the White House uh, that, that are deferential to these policies, and the fact that when you get to the social base of Donald Trump, you see, Brother Trump's followers are quite heterogeneous and diverse. I do not believe every follower of Donald Trump is a racist. No, not at all. A lot of them are just anti-Democratic Party. They were anti-Hillary. Many of them voted for Brother Barack Obama and didn't want to go with Hillary, so they went with Trump. We are going to actually win a slice of followers of Donald Trump in Brother Bernie Sanders' campaign. And I do, want, I do so. want to come back so to... It's I, know, to... I know you're a big fan of Bernie, and we're going to come back to Bernie Sanders in a moment. Just on Trump voters, though, pretty much all of the academic evidence that's been amassed since the election suggests that the... There were multiple factors and different types of voters, as you mentioned, but the common factor, the, the, the main driving force, was racial resentment over anything else. It was a quote-unquote white lash, as Van Jones of CNN put it. 
Oh, absolutely. And there's, there's no doubt about that. I think that uh, Van Jones is right about that, and Brother Coates is right about that, and Brother Eddie Glaude and Imani Perry and others are right about that. But that doesn't mean that exhausts his whole base. Yes. And his base is broad enough that one can still get at those who are willing to side with progressives on these issues of not just class in the abstract, but access to health care, quality education, decent housing, and so forth and so on. What about Trump himself? Would you call Trump a white nationalist, or is he just an opportunist who sees political benefit in aligning himself with the white nationalist movement? No, no. I mean, Brother Trump is a bona fide gangster who will do anything he can to stay in power, to remain visible, to have a certain kind of status that makes him feel good. So he's a narcissist, he's a, he's a racist, he's a xenophobe, he's patriarchal, he's homophobic. There's a lot of different things. But as you know, my brother, I don't believe in fetishizing uh, any of these leaders, that he, he, he's a sign and a symptom of a spiritually decadent culture that allows someone like him to have that kind of power and to have this, that kind of influence. So if we were to somehow uh, push Trump out, we still have the major challenge yes. of a system in place. Indeed. We still have folk who will follow him, and there'll be another Trump-like figure in that regard. If Trump does win a second term in office, how worried would you be about the fate, the future, uh, for racial minorities in this country? Is the president an existential threat to black and brown people in the United States if he were to win a second term emboldened for another four years? Well, I think he'd be a, he's an existential threat to the future of American democracy. I think that we would be on the road to escalating civil strife. I think we'd be on the road to uh, overwhelming wealth inequality. Polarization in place would be uh, exponentially increased. And so we're talking really about the, the undercutting uh, of the prospects of American democracy. I don't think that the fragility of the American democratic experience can survive when it's tied to greed at the top, the scapegoating of the vulnerable, unbelievable mendacity, lies, uh, a disregard of law, abuse of power, and so forth and so on. Given so in that sense, we just have to get ready to hit the streets. We got to go to jail, brother. So let's talk about the politicians on the Democratic side who are trying to replace Trump. The Democratic presidential field is the most diverse in U.S. history. Two black senators, one of them a black woman, a Latino former cabinet secretary, an Asian-American businessman, the first American Samoan elected to Congress, a gay man. Do you think this diversity has value, that it matters, or is it, as some on the left suggest, perhaps a little cynically, a distraction from the issues of power and who wields power? Well, certainly, though, when you talk about diversity, you can't just talk about skin pigmentation or gender or sexual orientation. You can have neoliberal politicians who have different colors, different genders, different sexual orientations, but they're still not diverse ideologically. You have to make a decision. Which ones have longevity of integrity when it comes to having solidarity with poor and working people. I get what you're saying, and I totally agree with what you're saying. It's not enough. You, you know what I mean? Exactly. I, I know it's not enough, but surely it's of value. There is some inherent value, is there not, to having a field of candidates who look more like America. Surely you prefer that than just to a row of 10 white men on stage debating. Oh, absolutely. But I tell you this, though, brother, that if, if I had 10 white brothers 
who consisted of John Brown, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, 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 Brother Brady from K Kentucky, and William O. Douglas from the Supreme Court, all of them courageous, visionary, and highly progressive. Yeah. I'd rather have them than to have some people of color who are, you know, part of the legacy of some neoliberal icon. Okay. You see what I mean? I do. Uh, you're supporting Senator Bernie Sanders in next year's election, as you did in 2016. One of the reasons Bernie Sanders failed to beat Hillary Clinton in 2016, though he shocked the system, was that he failed to connect with people of color in the way that Clinton did. She had this huge lead among black voters, especially in some of the key early swing states. Has he done enough this time around to connect with voters of color, to talk more about systemic racism issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the brilliance of a Nina Turner, Sister Turner, uh, uh, or uh, Danny Glover, or Phil Agnew, of, of Dream Defenders, or of Killer Mike, or of, I mean, there's so many black folk, people of color, who are part of the Bernie Sanders team. And uh, we have been breaking our necks. We've been doing all that we can, not because we think Bernie Sanders is some messiah. He's not. He's another human being. He's another brother but because he's a force for good tied to truth and justice that focuses on the needs and aspirations of poor and working people. Now, because there's so many people in the primary this time, it's, it's a unique kind of challenge. As you recall last time, we just had two. By the end of it, yes. And at that time, you had, you know, Hillary Clinton's got a long history with black people, had a whole patronage re a system in place that could bring in resources for black leaders and black preachers and black businessmen and women and so forth and so on. So it was hard to get Bernie's name out there. You recently said, quote, now is not the time for centrism, referring to Biden and others. Biden's been leading the field for most of this year with the Democrats. He even has the support of more than 40% of black voters compared with 20% who back Bernie Sanders. How do you explain that discrepancy? No, but Brother Biden has what I would call the Obama halo. And as long as somehow he can still invoke the Obama name, and, some, and Obama symbolically means much to blacks, and rightly so, he, he, he's, he's, uh, he's an unprecedented figure in terms of being the first black American. That's a symbolic indictment of white supremacy. I'm very critical of Obama's neoliberal substance, but for many black people, that symbolic breakthrough yes. is so important that as long as Biden has that halo, that he still can somehow, at the moment, muster their support. It's not going to last that long. Brother Biden is fading. And as we get concretely to see exactly what he has stood for, what he stands for now, it would be very clear that he stands for something in the past that is not good enough, and he doesn't have either the energy, nor does he have the courage or the backbone to deal with the present situation, let alone beat Donald Trump. We gotta beat Donald Trump. The only way you beat Donald Trump, unbelievable, unbelievable energy, enthusiasm, bringing in new voters, and having solidarity focused on yeah. principle. The only candidate who has is Brother Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden uh, has been blamed for increase in mass incarceration because of his support for a very controversial uh, 1994 crime bill. He's been criticized for his views on segregated schooling and busing, segregated busing in the 1970s. Uh, you've said Biden needs to, quote, get off his symbolic crack pipe 
if he doesn't want to lose a big slice of the black vote to Donald Trump. Do you really think it's possible that if Biden wins the Democratic nomination, black voters won't turn out for Biden in the numbers he'd need, and that could put Trump back in the White House for another four years? Well, I mean, that, that's a real possibility. That's a real possibility. I mean, it's not only the fact that he played such an important role in the expansion of the new Jim Crow and the mass incarceration regime, but the very much like Bloomberg stopping and frisking five million black and brown young folk, disproportionately males, they lie about it. They deny it. They defend it up until the last minute. And as soon as they get into an election, and they say they see they need black votes and other votes, then they shift and they reverse. That's lack of integrity. That's lack of moral consistency. They're going to be on fire promoting these policies that's doing in black folk, doing in poor folk, and then all of a sudden shift and think that somehow we still ought to see them as persons of integrity. Well, see, that's what is upsetting, because people are not stupid. They're not fools. They have some moral sensibility here. And so it's not just a matter of what they did, but it's a matter of what they did and then deny what they did do and then act as if we ought not to remember what they did. Talking of remembering what people did, Barack Obama, of course, America's first black president, turned out black voters at record levels and is still hugely popular with black Democrats especially. You were a fan too at one point until you flipped and became one of Obama's biggest Critics, you even said, quote, I would rather have a white president fundamentally dedicated to eradicating poverty and enhancing the plight of working people than a black president tied to Wall Street and drones. Do you stand by that even today? Oh, absolutely. You see, my brother, I believe in the primacy of the moral and the spiritual tied to a systemic analysis of the operations of power and institutions and structures, but the primacy of the moral and the spiritual. So no matter what color a person actually is, if they're anti-racist in a deep way, anti-sexist in a deep way, anti-homophobic in a deep way, critical of capitalism and all of its excesses when it comes to wealth inequality, I don't care what color they are at all. Clarence Thomas is a beautiful black man, and I agree with him, 2.5% of the time. It's a question of morality and spirituality, and the same is true with Barack Obama. If he's tied, when he's tied to Wall Street, when he's dropping drones, when he's tied to surveillance state, I got to bring critique to bear. Just finishing off the election discussion, looking back at 2016 for a moment, back then, after Sanders lost to Clinton, uh, he backed Hillary and campaigned for her. You refused to vote for Hillary Clinton and voted for the Green Party presidential candidate, Jill Stein. Given how narrow Trump's electoral college victory over Clinton was, in, especially in those three states, and given how utterly awful the Trump presidency has been, kids in cages, the Muslim ban, the wall, the white nationalism on full display, Surely you must now regret that decision not to back, in your eyes, the lesser of two evils, Hillary Clinton in 2016? Well, I don't think that my vote would have been the one vote to push Hillary Clinton across the line. Uh, one, we got to recognize, Bernie Sanders was treated unfairly by the Democratic Party establishment. If they had been fair, there was a good chance he would have won. And yet he I'm campaigned thoroughly convinced for Hillary Clinton. If he ran against... 
I know because we we disagreed there. We disagreed okay, so there, I'm and, that, and that's you, do fine. Do you stand by your that, disagreement? Forget Bernie for a moment. Just looking yes, back at what Trump I stand has by my, done. I stand by my disagreement. Okay, but look, just looking back at what Trump has done over three years, do you think not just you personally? Obviously, your one vote wouldn't have changed the election, but do you believe now Absolutely. that the third party voting it would have been better to focus on defeating Trump rather than suggesting Clinton and Trump were the same when they clearly weren't? Even given the awful campaign that Sister Hillary yes. ran and the given refusal that, to go to Wisconsin, all, all of that, they've got to take serious responsibility. 100%. Don't just point 100%. toward the three parties. 100%. I agree with you, and I've interviewed Hillary Absolutely. people you as agree. well, and I've put Absolutely. that. But I'm just asking, you know, I'm, you're in front of me, and I'm just wondering, okay, let me, let, me, let me throw forward. In 2020, next year, if Biden's the candidate, will you support Biden in order to get rid of Trump? Well, Biden's not going to be the candidate, but if he were, it's going to be a tough call. I can tell you that right now. It'd be a tough call. I mean, one is, though, brother, I, a tough I, I don't... You said that Trump I, is a neo-fascist at the start of this interview. It can't be a tough call. Surely you have to vote to get rid of the neo-fascist. No, there's ways of fighting fascism without necessarily supporting people associated with war crimes. You see, I, and, and, and as somebody, maybe I'm sounding like a Quaker, I'm a Mennonite or a Hutterite or whatever, but it's hard to be in the booth voting for people associated with vicious war crimes because the other candidate is a bigger war criminal. Why do I have to choose between that, two war criminals? Isn't that Why a principle I have to choose between of religious faith as well? Isn't that a principle of revolutionary Christianity and Islam and Judaism, the lesser of two evils? No, not at all. No, no, no. Christianity, is the, 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 you got the lesser of two evils, then you got the cross, then you got resurrection. They don't fit within both of those, though, brother. Not at all. But let me ask you this question. If the choice is between Trump and Bloomberg, you got two gangsters, a neoliberal gangster, a neo-fascist gangster. Is not are you going to, do we have to make a choice on, between us? I mean, look, I'm no fan of Michael Bloomberg, but just to pursue the analogy. Uh, I know, Bloomberg but I know, I know. Put, I, I mean, all this is, is hypothetical. Kids, all this is hypothetical. Agreed, but Bloomberg is not going to put kids in cages or ban one, you know, hundreds of millions of Muslims from the United States. That's true. As bad as he is. That's true. That's true. That's why Trump's neo-fascist and he's neoliberal. He, he's stopping and frisking. He's supporting Wall Street. He's reinforcing wealth inequality. And he's treating Palestinians as if they are nobodies. So that it, it, the choice is a tough one. But I, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it, though, brother. All I'm saying is I'm not on automatic. It's not just by instinct that I'm going to vote for anybody okay. in order not to vote for Trump. I, that, that's not how I live my life, my brother. OK, just before we finish, a major criticism you hear among some black leaders, uh, among some black politicians and activists these days, is the way in which so-called wokeness and call-out culture, quote-unquote, have become substitutes for genuine action, uh, for social movements uh, that That's you right. yourself have always believed are necessary for change. Do you share that criticism? It's come from different corners, from people associated with Black Lives Matter, from Barack Obama, from other people saying, you have to get out there. It can't just be, you know, going on Twitter and calling people out. Do you agree with that criticism, or do you think it's unfair? Well, I think the first thing to say is, fundamentally, it's not about identity, it's about solidarity. It's not about your skin pigmentation, it's about the quality of your courage connected to poor and working people. I don't believe in canceling anybody. I mean, Christians don't believe in canceling people. Everybody can bounce back. I believe everybody's a brother and sister, and they have the capacity to be changed and transformed. So I don't believe in canceling anybody whatsoever. But I do, in fact, say that when we talk about wokeness, 
I'm not talking about just being woke. You can be obsessed with wokeness and suffer from insomnia. I'm talking about being fortified. Are you a fighter in the long run? We don't want people woke and sprinters and run out of gas, and the next thing you know, they end up well-adjusted to injustice. That's like so much of the bourgeoisies, no matter what color they are. Middle-class folks that just can't wait to be engaged in upward mobility in order to go mainstream and become a new a new star with all the spectacle and overlook what's going on on the ground of people who are suffering. That's not the model. The model is Martin King, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Ella Baker. What are they talking about? Fortified. Are you fortified for the long run? Do you have your cemetery clothes on? Are you coughing ready to live and die for something bigger than you, like a fundamental transformation of a capitalist civilization? That's my tradition. One last question, Cornel West. Looking forward five or ten years, do you think we'll still be having these same conversations in the United States about race and racism and white nationalism that we're having at this moment? Will the discourse get better or worse? Depends on what we do, my brother. We're not on automatic when it comes to progress. If we have visionary, courageous people who are willing to sacrifice and change the world, make it better, it will be better. If we're conformist, complacent, if we're cowardly, we think that somehow things are going to get better on their own, they will certainly get worse, and we end up in a neo-fascist regime full bread. And at that point, we won't be having a conversation in media. You and I will be in jail together. God help us all. Cornell West, thank you so much for joining me on Upfront. Salute you, brother. Salute you, man. You force for good, man. Stay strong. That's our show. Upfront will be back next week.